They always say behind every great man there is a great woman. And that was certainly true of Abraham. Because we notice concerning Abraham that his faith and that which his faith enabled him to accomplish is spoken of in connection with his wife, Sarah. And if you note with me what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, particularly verse 11, the Bible records that through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Sarah received, the Bible says, strength to conceive seed. God intervened in her life and gave her what was needed but by the instrumentality of faith. And it is interesting for me here to see that her faith is spoken of in the context of her husband's faith. See, it begins in verse 8, by faith Abraham. But verse 11 continues, through faith also Sarah. It's interesting to note her faith being spoken of in the context of her husband's faith. And just to pause here, isn't it a wonderful thing when a husband and wife share the same faith? When they serve the Lord together, as what the Bible calls in 1 Peter, heirs together of the grace of life. And those who have this experience and this joy can testify to the blessing of God that it really is to be serving, as it were, in the same yoke Going on for the Lord in the same path, husband and wife, both trusting in the Lord. It's a great blessing. I know it's a great trial for some when the spouse is not a believer. And it's very difficult for that one who is a believer in those circumstances. Obviously, the prayer is that God would work mightily and save that spouse that doesn't know the Lord. But how wonderful it is to be in that equal yoke, joined together like Abraham and Sarah were in serving the Lord. What a blessing in the home. What a blessing in the church indeed. Our Christian couples. Abraham and Sarah loved the same Lord. And every time I think about the story of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis... I'm reminded of the story of another elderly couple in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. They were, of course, the parents of John the Baptist. And there are tremendous parallels between John the Baptist and Isaac. One of them has to do with the parents. When you read Luke chapter 1, you see that in verse number 6, the Bible records of the parents of John the Baptist, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. There's a Christian couple. There's a couple walking in faith with the Lord. And then it says this, and they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren 
And they both were now well stricken in years. That's just a nice way of saying they were old. They were at a stage where they were thinking that ship has already sailed. We're never going to have a child. And that changed, of course, when an angel visited Zacharias, who was a priest of the Lord. And it's interesting to note that Zacharias and indeed Elizabeth had been praying for a child. That's why when it tells us in verse 13, the angel said to him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. That's why Zacharias should have been rejoicing immediately at that news. But what did he say? Here's the promise. And again, we're drawing a parallel with Abram and Isaac. The Lord gave a promise, didn't he, about Isaac. He told Abram, thou shalt have a son. He told Zacharias, thou shalt have a son. There's the promise. But there was a problem. And it's in Luke 1 verse 18 that that problem is identified. And Zacharias said unto the angel, whereby shall I know this? How's that going to happen? In other words, for I am an old man and my wife well stricken in years. There's the problem. See the parallel with Abram and Sarah? Abram's an old man. He's a hundred. Sarah is an old woman. She's ninety. The Bible says it has ceased to be with her after the manner of women. Today we would say she's post-menopause, right? She's an old lady. She's not going to have a child. Are you kidding me? That's the thought that people would have. And of course that was the reaction of Abraham initially. Don't forget that Abraham, though the Bible says that he did what he did by faith, initially we see him as being unbelieving. How do you know that? Genesis 17, verse 17. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? And he starts a little argument with the Lord. He says, Lord, oh that Ishmael might live before thee. Lord, I've already got a son. Surely he can be the child of promise. He recognized that there was a problem. But it's not a problem that was insurmountable because as was later spoken, is anything too hard for the Lord? And we know that the answer to that is there is nothing that is too hard for the Lord. But see the parallel here between Abram and Sarah and Zacharias and Elizabeth? The promise was given. Initially there was unbelief regarding that promise, but then the Lord was faithful to his promise. And in both cases, a son was born in their old age. But there's also a parallel with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll come to that as we go through this message. But when God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, as we mentioned last time, the promise of blessing centered upon the son who would be born to him. We read of this in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had told him to get out from his country, 
from his kindred, from his father's house. He said, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. I'm going to bless you. I'll make thy name great. Thou shalt be a blessing. And he said this, And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. That was the promise concerning his seed. The child of promise, Isaac, then would be one from whom would spring the Messiah himself, even the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it was the fulfillment of all those prophecies that the Messiah would come. And we're told in Matthew concerning the genealogy according to the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ, Leading up to his birth, the very first verse of Matthew chapter 1, it says there, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham begat Isaac. There's where it started, leading right up to the birth of the Messiah. The child of promise, Isaac, was going to be the one from whom would arise the Christ Himself, But obviously that great event could not come about through Abram or his faith only. He must also have a believing wife. And this is where Sarah and her faith comes into sharp focus in the scripture. Sarah was not a patriarch per se, but she was a wife of the patriarch Abraham. And it is vital to see her place as a heroine of faith. Let's notice three things about her faith. The importance of it. It tells us there in Hebrews 11.11 that Sarah also herself. Herself. In other words, the, the Holy Spirit's laying stress upon the individual nature of true faith. It's not that Abraham possessed faith and therefore Sarah could go in the strength of that. No, she must herself possess saving faith in God. Being in possession of that personal trust in the Lord, she and Abram had the great joy of seeing the promise of God fulfilled in the birth of Isaac. That's a really important point. It's really important to note this about Sarah, that her faith was personal. She had a faith of her own. It's not just that Isaac was going to be begotten on account of the faith of Abraham, but Sarah was very much involved. What can we learn from that? Well, I think the most basic lesson is that there's no such thing as proxy faith. When it comes to God's salvation, when it comes to having an experience of the Lord, you cannot be depending on somebody else's faith. Whether that be a husband or a wife, depending on the faith of their spouse, whether that be a child, depending on the faith of of their parents, you have to have a personal experience with the Lord. And this was true of Sarah. Sarah herself was one who had faith. I'm reminded here of Timothy. We recall what Paul said about him. 
He talked about his godly grandmother. And he talked about his godly mother. Their names are Eunice and Lois. He said, when I call to remembrance, 2 Timothy 1.5, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith, that means faith that's not affected or put on, it's genuine, that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois. Thank God for godly grannies. Thank God for grandmothers who pray for their children and their grandchildren. Thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice. Thank God for godly mothers. Timothy had both of those. A grandma and a mother who loved the Lord. But here's what Paul said, most importantly. I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Timothy, you're a believer. Timothy, you've got faith and trust in the Lord. See, children are not saved by the faith of their parents. And wives and husbands are not converted by the faith of their partners in marriage. True faith is of the most individual kind. God imparts faith to the individual heart in regeneration. Jesus said to Nicodemus, ye must be born again. You must have a faith of your own that God has given to you. So the question this morning that I would always ask of people is, do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord as an individual? Is he your Lord and Savior? Sarah herself must receive strength from the Lord to conceive and bear a son. She had to have a personal reception of that strength. She possessed a true faith of her own. That's the importance of it. And as I look at Sarah and think about her faith, I'm reminded of Luke chapter 1 and verse 45, where Elizabeth said to the mother of Jesus, Mary, before she ever gave birth to the Lord Jesus, and blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. See, Mary, the Virgin Mary, believed the promise that the angel brought to her. What was that promise? Thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. Just cast your mind back to what happened when Abraham was told that he was going to have a son. He laughed. He didn't believe. And he brought up the problem. How can I, as a hundred-year-old man, and my wife as a ninety-year-old, ever have a son? Zacharias, in Luke chapter 1, was the same. The promise was given. Thy prayer is heard. Elizabeth shall bear thee a son. Thou shalt call his name John. What did Zacharias say? There's a problem. Whereby shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. And notice what happened with Mary. When the angel told her in Luke chapter 1 verse 31, Thou shalt conceive and bring forth a son. Mary said in verse 34, How shall this be, saying, I know not a man? See, there's the problem again. Abram recognized there was a problem physically. It just was not possible, humanly speaking, 
for a 100-year-old man to father a son and a 90-year-old woman to bear a son. Zacharias, me and Elizabeth were both old. All that is now in the past. We can't have a child. We're too old. And now we have Mary. I don't know a man. There's a problem. But you see, again, just as it said there in Genesis Is there anything too hard for the Lord? So the angel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1 and verse 37, For with God nothing shall be impossible. So you can have a virgin birth. And that's why we believe in the virgin birth. Because with God nothing shall be impossible. There's no such thing as a virgin birth normally. But we're talking here about the God of the supernatural. We're speaking here about a God to whom nothing is impossible. And so here we have a son who's going to be born, a son of promise, to a woman who's a woman of faith. And that certainly was true even of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, because Mary believed that there would be a performance of the things which were told her from the Lord. And that's why she said, even before Jesus was born, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. He that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. The child hasn't even been born yet. In fact, there's no evidence that the child has been uh, was anywhere near being born yet. But it does say that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe in her womb leaped. Yes, a child in the womb is a child. A child in the womb is a real child. John the Baptist jumped for joy even in the very womb of his mother at the thought that Christ would be born. The importance of Sarah's faith. Notice then the impediments to her faith. Now, it's always remarkable to me, and I hope to you, to see the light that the New Testament sheds on Old Testament history. For example, you have a commentary by Simon Peter in his epistles on an Old Testament character, the nephew of Abraham, Lot. I will tell you, believing as I do, if I did not have the light of the New Testament, And the information that's written there about Lot, I would assume, based upon what I read in the Old Testament, that Lot was not a believer. That's what I would have concluded. Why? Well, he goes into the gate of Sodom. He becomes an elder sitting in the gate. Then he enters into Sodom. He marries a woman there of that city. He doesn't want to leave the city. When he does leave the city, he gets drunk. He's involved in incest and fathers children to two of his daughters. Can you imagine anyone like that today professing to be a Christian? What the attitude of every believer would normally be to that? No. You're not a believer. Are you kidding me? You're not saved. Well, if that was the Regular behavior of Lot, you would be right. But I would suggest to you that his behavior in that instance was an aberration. Just as with 
David, the psalmist, he didn't sin with a whole bunch of women over and over and over and over again. He sinned once with Bathsheba. Now that was a terrible time. And it had tremendously bad consequences. But the idea that David was a serial adulterer is not true. David was a man after God's own heart and by his own stupidity and folly he fell into sin and it was a terrible sin and it cast a great blot upon his life and that of the nation. But you can't say that David was a man who was constantly committing adultery with women because if he had, he would not be a man of God. He would not have been a believer. And the same is true of Lot. But what do we read of Lot in the New Testament? In Peter's epistle, he speaks of just Lot. And he speaks of the fact that he vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. There he was in Sodom and he didn't like what was going on. His soul was vexed by what was happening. Because he was a justified man. So it's important for us to read the whole of the Bible. Reading just the narrative in Genesis, you might have had serious doubts as to the reality of Lot's conversion experience, but the Holy Spirit has informed us through Peter that he was a righteous man and that he was a just man. Now what's that got to do with Sarah? Well, it is important to read the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament. And this is particularly the case with regard to Sarah the mother of the promised son. When we talk about her faith, look with me again at Hebrews 11. This is really important. Once again, verse 11. It's clear, isn't it? Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age. Notice this. Because she judged him faithful who had promised. She judged him faithful who had promised. But did we not read the Genesis account this morning? And would it not be difficult, impossible indeed, to reach the same conclusion based upon that? Because we know that what happened there in chapter 17 was that when Abraham heard that he was going to have a son, that his wife would be expecting a son... He fell on his face and he laughed. And the same thing happened with Sarah in chapter 18. When those men, those angels visited, one of them said to Abram, Where is Sarah thy wife? Where's your wife? Oh, he said she's in the tent. And he said to him, Well, I'm going to return unto you according to the time of life, and lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. There's the promise repeated again. And God does repeat His promises, by the way. Over and over and over again, God was faithful in promising Abraham that he would have a son. Didn't just tell him once, but told him repeatedly. Here's another instance of it. Lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And the Bible says in verse 10 of Genesis 18, And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. She was eavesdropping on the conversation. Did you ever do that? Listen to what people are saying. It's not your conversation, but you can hear what they're saying. Normally we would view that as bad manners, wouldn't we? That's rude. 
But you know that's how John Bunyan was converted. There were a bunch of ladies standing conversing about the gospel. And they began to listen to what they were saying. And as a result of hearing that conversation, <clears throat> John Bunyan came to Christ. So it's not always a bad thing to listen in on conversations. So here's Sarah. And she listens. She hears this. She's going to have a son. That's how she reacted. How do we know? Verse 11 and 12. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. And it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself saying, After I am waxed old shall I have pleasure my Lord being old also. You see, the Holy Spirit has given us in Hebrews 11 the information that Sarah was given faith to believe God's promise. But Genesis 18 reveals her attitude at the first. And isn't it true of many of us today, maybe all of us today, there was a time when we would have laughed at the very gospel itself. There was a time when we had no thought of Christ and no desire for Christ. And if someone had told us that we were going to be Bible believers, reading the Word, praying, going to church, we would have laughed at them. But God brought about a change. And so here we have God bringing about a change in Sarah. First of all, like her husband, she had a very physical impediment to the fulfillment of God's promise. We're talking about the impediments to her faith. She had a physical impediment. She was old. In fact, they were both too old to have children. So strength was going to have to be given to overcome old age and barrenness. This was indeed a tremendous obstacle which would require a miracle of God to overcome. We go back to the story of John the Baptist's birth. Wasn't that a miracle? Zacharias and Elizabeth were old, well stricken in years. They couldn't have a child naturally, normally. But God intervened and did a miracle. In a far higher sense, God did a miracle by implanting the seed into the womb of the Virgin Mary that was Christ. No biological father, no earthly father. He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary without sin of the Holy Ghost. Born of her, yet without sin. There was, if you like, an impediment to the fulfillment of God's promise that had to be overcome. A birth that was humanly impossible. A birth that would require a miracle of God to take place. And so it happened. And so it is in the miracle of regeneration. You and I can't save ourselves. We could never hope to be saved in a thousand lifetimes. But God, by the miracle of regeneration, brings us from death to life. And causes us to believe the gospel. Now here's what we notice about Sarah as an impediment as well. There was a physical impediment. But there was also a spiritual impediment. What was it? It was unbelief. We don't need to read the verses again. But we see it there in Genesis 18. How she laughed. And that's the first thing we're struck with. She laughed. Just like Abram had laughed in chapter 17 verse 17. 
God had to overcome skepticism in Abraham's heart as well. But here's Sarah laughing. Why is she laughing? Because she doesn't believe. Have you ever come across unsaved people who laugh at the things of God? I have. Many, many times. You come up to this time of year and when you preach on the virgin birth of Christ, you've got people who can hardly stifle the laughs. Because they don't believe. Unbelief causes the laughter, the mockery, the scorn. Sarah laughed in unbelief. But she was challenged by the Lord about her laughter and about her unbelief. Because you have these words in chapter 18 and verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, Wherefore did Sarah laugh? Why did your wife laugh? Saying, Shall I have a surety bear a child which I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Why is she laughing? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life. And Sarah shall have a son. But notice, Sarah denied, verse 15, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. So not only did she laugh, but she lied. Now she didn't laugh out loud, wasn't LOL. She was laughing into herself. That's what it says there in verse number 12. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, under her breath. She's smirking away underneath. She's laughing out loud. But you see, God knows our hearts. You don't have to laugh out loud. The Lord knows when you're laughing in your heart. You can't hide anything from Him. He knows when we're laughing, even on the inside. He knows about our unbelief. And Sarah was full of it. And that was a real impediment to the fulfillment of the promise. Actually, an impediment that was greater than the physical impediments of old age. Her spiritual impediment of unbelief. Now what did she not believe? She didn't believe in God's promise. That was the first thing. She was aware of the promise, but she didn't believe it. How do you know that? Well, it's obvious, isn't it, in the matter of Hagar? Sarah didn't believe God's promise. God said, I'm going to give you a son. And she said to Abram, take my Take my handmaid, Hagar, and have a child with her, because you're not going to have a child with me. She didn't believe. And that's why the whole business of Hagar came into play. And by the way, God seems not to have spoken to Abram for 13 years after that aberration with Hagar. Because Genesis 17 and verse 1 says that Abram was 90 years old and 9 and the Lord appeared to him. You just go back through the Bible, you'll see it had been 13 years before that the Lord had spoken to him. But Sarah laughed in unbelief. Do you know that unbelief will hinder you as a Christian in your walk with God? It will hinder you in your work for God. It will hinder the church. Unbelief. I listened to that message recently from our brother Wagner when he was dealing with the struggles of the believer. And one of the things that he dealt with was that very thing. The lack of faith. Why could we not cast the devil out? 
The Lord told the disciples, here's why you couldn't do it, because you're full of unbelief. Oh, that the Lord would help us to believe his promise. She was filled with unbelief about God's power. You know, really, in effect, what Sarah was saying was this. This can't happen. It's too hard even for the Lord. Do you ever come to that place? Do you ever think like that? This is even too hard for the Lord. Even the Lord can't deal with this. Now, we may never say this outwardly. We may never actually articulate this, but that's what we're thinking in our hearts. That sinful demon of unbelief, it causes us to deny the very power of God to do what He has promised to do. Think about His keeping power in our lives. And we have this doubt and fear that will not be in heaven. That after all of this is over, we're not going to be saved after all. What is that? But just sinful unbelief. Listen, we serve a God who can do the impossible. Sarah was unbelieving about God's promise and God's power, but also God's purpose. See, God did have a purpose, and it was not only that Isaac would be born, but that through that event, eventually, the coming of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, would take place. Hundreds of years in the future. But this is what was going to happen. The seed that was promised, as we've emphasized over and over again in Galatians 3.16, that seed was Christ. So when you really think about it, Sarah's unbelief here in connection with this was unbelief about the coming of the Redeemer. Ultimately, that's what it was. Unbelief is an impediment to that which pertains to the work of Christ. And it hinders the progress of the Lord's work. Now we know that God is sovereign. God will do what he chooses to do and what he purposes to do. There's no question about that. But it's interesting, is it not, how the Lord, being pleased to work by means, tells us in his word that there can be a hindrance of his work by unbelief. Maybe you've struggled with these verses. I have at times and thought, this is really interesting to read, but it's in the Bible, and therefore it's true. In Matthew 13 and verse 58, the Bible clearly says of Jesus, and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. There it is. Is Jesus not all powerful? Yes, he is. All authority is given unto him in heaven and on earth. So what does the Bible mean? What does the Holy Spirit mean when he says he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief? It's because the Lord has chosen to allow this to be the case. Unbelief, sinful doubting, can definitely be an impediment in the work of God. We see it as well in Mark's Gospel in the chapter 6 from verse 5. The Lord's in his own country and it says, And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. He could do there no mighty work. Oh, how unbelief can hinder the work of God. So how is unbelief to be overcome? 
By prayer. By earnest prayer. The very portion that I referenced there about the disciples not being able to cast out the devil. Doesn't it tell us that the father of that young man said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. You know, every one of us as a Christian is a conundrum. We're we're kind of a contradiction. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Yes, I'm a believer. I, I believe your word. But Lord, I'm full of unbelief at the same time. What are we doing? We're bringing that unbelief to the Lord. By earnest prayer, the disciples said in Luke 17, verse 5, Lord, increase our faith. Don't we need the Lord to do that for us? I do. Lord, increase our faith. Help my unbelief. The Lord helped Sarah's unbelief. How do you know? Because Hebrews 11, verse 11 tells us she judged him faithful who had promised. This is the same Sarah who laughed. She judged him faithful who had promised. What changed? Well, the third point gives us the answer. The impartation of her faith. So the Lord gave her faith. And what wonderful faith she did have. Is it not a remarkable thing in regard to the birth of Jesus leading up to that? When Mary uttered what is called the Magnificat, when she said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and so on. She referred to the promise that was given to Abraham. I had not seen this until I started studying for the message. I've read this hundreds and hundreds of times. But it never really hit me until I looked at this again. Luke chapter 1 and verse 55. As he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Look at that. She's referring back to the promise of God to Abraham. About the coming of Isaac, yes, but ultimately the coming of the Messiah. The one that she was going to bear into the world. Mary had that understanding. Because the Lord had given her faith. In Sarah's case, there's a contrast to what we read in Genesis 18. In Hebrews 11, verse 11. Hebrews tells us that she believed. She leaned upon the Lord in faith. Genesis 18, she laughed. The unbeliever became a believer in the promise of God. Through faith also Sarah. Sarah was dealt with in mercy by the Lord because it was he who gave her faith to believe just like her husband Abraham. You know, we mentioned there a couple of instances of laughter. Genesis 17, 17 says that Abram laughed. Genesis 18 and verse 12 says that Sarah laughed. But when you go to Genesis chapter 21, from verse 6, well we'll read verse 5 for the connection. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. There it is. That's impossible, isn't it? How can an old fellow of a hundred have a son. If you'd seen someone who was a hundred years old with a baby, you would say, that's his great-grandson. Right? That's his great-grandson. But you'd never say, that was his grandson even. 
You certainly wouldn't say that's his son. But that's what happened. And the next verse says, And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. Isn't that remarkable? This is not the laughter now of unbelief. This is the laughter of joy and faith. Oh, I was laughing before in unbelief. Are you kidding me? Having a child at my age, it can't happen. Now she says, the Lord has given me that son and God has made me to laugh. Joy. Triumphing in faith over dark doubt. That's what the laughter is here. And what had brought about the change in Sarah from being unbelieving to being believing, laughing in unbelief to laughing in joy, what made the difference? Well, it was God's voice. God's own word was the source of the strength that she received to conceive and bear a son. How do you know? Because Genesis chapter 21 verse 1 tells us, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. See, the Lord gave his promise and he renewed his promise to her and she believed his word. God changed her mind and her heart by the powerful operation of his word. And so it will be for us. And it's true of the Christian just as it's true of the unsaved person who hears the gospel. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Friends, let us trust God's word. Let us read the Bible daily. Let us read the promises and let's bring them to the Lord and put them to the test. Lord, this is what your word says. Do as thou hast said. You know the story of the old lady visited by the minister. And he didn't have his own Bible with him that day, so he asked her for her Bible. He'd like to read a passage of scripture to her. And as he was leafing through her Bible, he noticed all these little marks in the margin of nearly every page of her Bible. T and P. In the world is that? T and P. <clears throat> she says, dear, what is this all over your Bible? T and P. Oh, she says, pastor, those are all the promises of God that I've tested and proved. Those are the promises that I've tested and proved. God is as good as his word. What a wonderful thing that is. And again, you could, if we had time, see this in Mary. We see this in the birth of Christ. That Mary, at first, is saying, well, how can this be? I don't know a man. And then the Lord strengthens her by his own word, and she believes his word. She judged him faithful who had promised. There was a visitation of God as well as the voice of God as far as Sarah was concerned. And you know, it's interesting to see the first mention of things. I said that Genesis was a book of beginnings and there's a lot of first mentions of, of doctrines and of people in Genesis. But it says in Genesis 21, And the Lord visited Sarah, as he had said. He visited her. Now, that's an interesting word in the Hebrew. It actually denotes a great act of mercy in a case of desperate need. 
It's a bit like the New Testament where it talks about in James chapter 1, only it's a Greek word there that underlies it, that we are to visit the widows and the afflicted in their need. It doesn't just mean you go and call in on them for a cup of tea. It means that you are a benefactor to them, that you show them mercy, that you show them kindness. And that's the word here. It denotes a great act of mercy in a case of desperation. It's actually a word that if I was literally translating it, I would be saying the Lord was looking over or inspecting carefully Sarah. Isn't that lovely? Oh, what a close interest the Lord takes in His people. Do you ever think sometimes, well, I'm just one of many. The Lord doesn't really bother too much with me. Listen, God is just as interested in you as He is in any other believer. We share a common faith. Peter talked about that. He talked about that faith, which literally means a faith of the same kind that we all share. And so the Lord came to look over and and inspect carefully Sarah. That's what it means. The Lord visited Sarah. He was closely paying attention to her need that he might meet the need. And Sarah received that strength that she needed. Her womb was renewed. A miracle was performed in her body. And the ordinary laws of nature were set aside and suspended in her case. And in the case of Abraham. And there was a wonderful strength given to Sarah to bear a child when such a thing appeared to be impossible. We think today of the day that we live in at such a wicked age. Could there ever be a revival? Could we ever see a mighty move of God in power? Giving to the church strength to bring forth children, new sons and daughters. Yet God is able to do it. Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? That was the question of unbelief. We can turn it around and say, God can. God can furnish a table in the wilderness. See, the Lord can visit us. The church has great needs, but the Lord inspects those needs carefully. He can come and meet those needs. And that's what we do require today, a divine visitation. Lord, visit this vine is the prayer of the psalmist. And then, one final thing here about the faith of Sarah. And we're talking here in particular about the impartation of that faith. There was not only the voice of God and the visitation of God, but the vitality or the strength of God that was given to her. Hebrews 11.11 She received strength. She was an old lady without strength. And the Lord caused her to receive strength so that she had the years rolled back. I would suggest to you that through the years, she's now 90, Sarah had thought many times about what would it be like to have a child. And she finally got to that point where she realized, well, it's not happening. It's not happening. I'm not going to have a child. That's it. And here she is, 90 years of age, And she's got a little babe in her arms and she's looking at him and thinking, how did that happen? Well, it happened by the power of God. That's how it happened. God gave her strength. And as we look at that word in Hebrews 11.11, the word strength is dunamis in the Greek. word from which we could get the English word dynamite. It suggests divine power. 
divine power. And Sarah's fruitfulness certainly is reminiscent of a revived and empowered church bringing forth fruit. For this is what we want to see. The church bringing forth children. And this is a thought for us to consider. Is it not better to have a visitation from God and his strength imparted to him in the work than trying out some newfangled methods to increase the church? That's what a lot of religious bodies have done. That's what a lot of churches have done. They've sold out to the devil's lie. And I've just thought, you know what? People are not interested in Sunday night services, so we're not going to have a Sunday night service. That's it. We're not going to do it anymore. And you can apply that to a whole range of different things. This doesn't work anymore, so we're not going to do that. We're going to try something else. People don't want old-fashioned Christianity. So we'll bring the rock band in. We'll bring in the entertainments to the church. We'll have drama instead of preaching. We'll not have pews. We'll sit around in a circle and the pastor will come up with his polo shirt and shorts and sit on a bar stool. And we'll be like the rest of the churches and the rest of the people. And maybe that way we'll see the work increase. And instead of cancelling church, because that wouldn't be right on Super Bowl Sunday, we'll put a big screen out into the parking lot and we'll show the people the game. And we'll tell them, you know, you need to be saved at half time. What an abomination. You know, folks, it's not better methods that we need in the work of God. We need a visitation from God. That's what we need. You know, think back in church history. What did they do? What did they do differently from what we do today? Nothing. They prayed and they preached. That's all they did. They prayed and they preached. And God visited his people. And when we think about Sarah by Abraham, she became the mother of a great multitude. Hebrews 11 verse 12 tells us that. She was given strength by faith to bring forth offspring, but from that one there sprang a multitude. And that's how God is able to work, even today. When revival comes to the church, when divine power is poured out, there's a bringing forth of a spiritual seed. There are new births. And it happens in answer to prayer. May we pray that God will come to his church As he came to Sarah, that will not be laughing at the promises of God. That will not be laughing in unbelief at the very thought that God can do great things. But rather we will see God visit. And it will cause us to laugh and triumph and enjoy. May God do it for his own glory.